please turn to 1 Samuel 27. Eight to ten-year-olds are dismissed. As you're turning to 1 Samuel 27, just a word about a couple weeks from now, we'll plan to gather together for Good Friday. Uh, normally, take, we take a look at the cross and understand why it's so precious to us, and so we'll be doing that together Good Friday night. And then Resurrection Sunday, uh, same time, 10 a.m. here. Uh, sometimes uh, the passage before us um, in our regular verse-by-verse preaching through the Word of God doesn't uh, lend itself directly, as directly, to the resurrection, um, and sometimes they do. And so, on Lord's Day Sunday, I'll still be in First Samuel. Uh, Saul is going to seek counsel from a witch, a medium, which is interesting. They're going to summon Samuel, who's already dead, and Samuel's going to speak to them, which is interesting. So we'll make some sense of that, but I, what I want you to see, and maybe any guests who are here with us, is that uh, there is a man who has died, who we can talk to, who is alive now, who loves to listen to us, and who also, after he ascended to heaven, prays for us. Day and night, Hebrews 7 says. And so I think this passage does lend itself well to then looking at the resurrected King, Jesus Christ and appreciating the fact that He's alive, He listens to His people, He guides His people even today. So, very excited about uh, that passage and the truths revealed in it. So, just, just a heads up on, on a couple weeks from now, all right? Okay, today, 1 Samuel chapter 27, and then we'll go into chapter 28, verse 2. Please follow along as I read. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns so that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the, Ger- the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. 
Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Entitled this message, When Spiritual Heroes Trouble Us. Remember as a new believer in Santa Cruz, California, being at church and because of the Holy Spirit's work, being amazed at the Word of God for the first time in my life. I grew up in an environment where the Word of God was pointed to, referenced. Uh, I grew up in an environment where I was going to church Sunday in, Sunday out, I even went to a Christian school where the Word of God was opened, but my heart wasn't warmed to the Word of God. It was just kind of something we did. And then I became a Christian. And as you know, when you're converted, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is opens your mind, illumines your mind to the powerful Word of God. And so I was hungry for the Word for the first time in my life. And I remember sitting under uh, Bible teaching for the first time in my life and just amazed at at the Word and what it said and what I was learning, and I was therefore amazed by the servant of uh, the Lord, uh, the pastor at that church who would teach. And I remember thinking, man, this guy's so godly, this guy's so wonderful, and just being helped by that. I remember talking to a friend named Melissa during that time, and I'll never forget what Melissa said. She said, it's almost as if I can't imagine him sinning, the pastor. Well, I'm a pastor now. And I know the truth. All leaders, all Christians, no matter how mature they may be or uh, how great they teach or live or whatever it may be, all of them, all of us, still sin. We are not the ones that people should be looking toward. None of us are. Your godly grandmother is not your Savior. Your favorite preacher on the internet is a horrible Savior. There's only one Savior. But there are things to learn from spiritual heroes. There are good things to learn. We can also learn from mistakes. And in this passage, David, if we can say it this way, makes us a little bit uncomfortable. He makes us a little bit uncomfortable. His thinking makes us uncomfortable. His tactics make us uncomfortable. And so I want to walk through the passage and observe that. And then at the end, I want to guide us to the one that alone is able to make us perfectly comfortable. It's important for us to consider that our heroes of the faith are all, all of them, every man and woman who would be a hero to us, all of them are fallen and they are needy, all of them. But it's also important to remember that God uses fallen heroes for His good purposes. He does. David's an example of that. David's a fugitive in this book for about nine chapters. About nine of the 31 chapters have David fearing or running from Saul in some way, shape, or form. The last few chapters that we've seen, we've seen in chapter 24, David really be an example of godliness and mercy when he had Saul in his grips, he would not kill him. He would wait for the Lord's timing. There, there's, 
something special about that, something we can learn about that and grow in and, and take as an example to us. Chapter 25, David actually is tempted towards sin, and he would carry it out evidently if God, out of his goodness, hadn't sent Abigail, this woman, to interrupt David, to stop David, if you will, from sinning. So David, 24, this commendable man of God, and 25, oh, he's just like me. He wants to take vengeance into his own hand just like I do. Chapter 26, again, he's successful, and he spares Saul's life a second time, which you could argue is harder than showing mercy the first time. And then here in 27, we're troubled by David's thinking at the very beginning. David saying to himself, Saul's going to kill me. David's been showing us that he's trusted in God. He, he knew that he'd be king. Saul would be defeated. In fact, just in last week's passage, chapter 26 and verse 10, he said this, and David said, as the Lord lives, David speaking to one of his men, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. So the Lord's saying, the Lord's, or David's saying, the Lord's going to take care of him. I know he will. And David fully planned to be the coming king. But then here in this passage, David's not preaching to himself anymore. He's just listening to himself. And he's worried. And he fears that God's going to kill him. That's troubling. And then David slaughters people, lies about it, and appears to be an enemy to his own people, the Israelites. Now, we know the rest of the story. Some of you know the rest of the story, but, but this ends abruptly. David's going to war against Israel. It's meant to be troubling. The writer's meaning to have you concerned. Where is David going? He started out so well, and even like many spiritual heroes that we may have had, it's going so well, and then an utter failure at the end. Is this what's happening with David? So, this morning, let's Notice this, two troubling observations as we witness David's desperation. David's in a desperate place. He takes it upon himself to respond poorly. And so we're going to see two troubling observations as we witness David's desperation. Here's the first thing that we're troubled by. We're troubled by David's thinking. Verse 1, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. That's troubling. David hasn't been talking like that. David is just like you and I. We might tell people God's in control, and then a great trial comes to us, and we say, I don't know what God's doing. This isn't going to work out. David's just like us, just like us. Even a giant, a man of God in the faith, David, has moments of weakness when it comes to his thinking. That word there, perish, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Look up or look back to the, to the verse I just read to you a few moments ago, 2610. Chapter 26, verse 10. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him on, or that his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. So one chapter, David's saying, God's going to take care of him. He will perish. Now David's saying, no, no, he's going to kill me. I'm going to perish. This is what it's like. All of us have this. High moments of right thinking. I trust you, God. And then Monday comes, 
and our heart really is saying, I don't trust you, God. This is David. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. There is nothing better for me. Do you remember in chapter 22, there is all of a sudden this random messenger from God, sent by God, this random messenger from God that told David to go back and stay in Judah. Judah is the place for David to stay. God has told David, Judah is the place for you. Now David's saying, there's nothing better for me than to go to the Philistines. This is what we do when we're not thinking rightly. We actually tell God that he's wrong. We assume he's wrong. I know the Bible says, but. I know God tells me, but. I know God gives me this promise, but. I know he tells me to obey in this way, and that will indicate trust in him, but. This is David. I know you say Judah, but there's nothing better for me than actually be with the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. This is one of the reasons that we think and operate wrongly, because we think, I can trust in God to rescue me out of the situation, but I don't think that's working, so I will rescue myself out of the situation. That's what David does. Takes his own life, if you will, into his own hands. I've got this. This is what's best. Verse 2, so David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard about this king. This isn't the first time David's gone to Gath as he's been running from Saul, right? He went to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, whom he killed earlier out of desperation. We saw that earlier in 1 Samuel. He went there, and then he all of a sudden found out, oh, this might not actually be the best place for me. And he was arrested, and he acted like a madman. So Achish, the king, said, I've got plenty of madmen. I don't, I don't need another. Send him away. Whew. David escaped. But this shows the depth, the depth of David's despair, doesn't it? He's going to go try it again. Maybe it'll work this time. Desperate people do foolish things repeatedly. This is what David does. He's going to try it again. So he takes the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maot, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man and his household. How, how many could this have been? 600 men plus their wives and kids, plus David's own wives and whatever kids they may have had at that point. There's a large group here. Some have estimated 1,500 maybe, 1,500 people going to live in Gath, enemy territory, Philistine territory. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, and Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Guess what? David's poor thinking worked. Sometimes we make foolish decisions and God is still gracious, doesn't excuse the foolish decision. But what it should show us that God is gracious. God's gracious. But this is troubling to me. Troubling to me. It's troubling to me to see someone who's been given so many assurances of God's care for him to not then believe that God would care for him. 
It's troubling to you when you see friends and loved ones not trusting in the Lord. But I think what's most troubling is not how I feel when other people, for the fact that other people can do this, fail to trust in the Lord. I can see myself in David failing to trust in the Lord. I know his word says this, but I'm feeling this, so I'm going to do that. That's a very David-like posture in 1 Samuel chapter 27. So David thought, David's thoughts trouble us. Shouldn't he be stronger? He's already written Psalm 34. This incident doesn't, doesn't happen, and then he goes back into a cave and pens Psalm 34, this psalm about trusting in the Lord. He's already written that. He's already written a psalm that many of us have read dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Maybe you've sung it, Psalm 34. This is happening after that. David didn't just start off a lowly shepherd and maybe, you know, think wrongly once or twice, and then all of a sudden he wrote a psalm like Psalm 34, and then after that, everything was fine. Every day was a day of trust in the Lord. No, his Christian life looked like our Christian lives. Up and down, up and down. The ultimate trajectory being up, but still up and down, up and down. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 34. I sought the Lord. Now remember, this is before our passage here in 1 Samuel 27. He wrote this before this. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David wrote that, as we said before, in the wilderness, maybe even in a cave, and he wrote Psalm 34 and said, the angel of the Lord is surrounding our camp. It's interesting, just a little bit after that, we saw in the passage last week, just a little bit after that, David surrounds Saul's camp, and David could kill him. But David knows when he writes Psalm 34, he knows the angel of the Lord is surrounding David's camp. So whether David's in the wilderness, in Judah, wherever he is, the angel of the Lord is there. If, da- if, if David is in the teeth of the battle, if he's in the most vulnerable place in Judah, where Saul controls, if he's there, there's something greater than Saul. The angel of the Lord is protecting David. But then we come here, and David's not trusting that. Saul's going to kill me. I better go to the Philistines. You almost want to hold Psalm 34 up to David and say, read this again. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon oftentimes would struggle with depression, and he was in one of his seasons where he was discouraged, he was in despair, and a friend picked up a a piece of paper, a document, and started reading it to Spurgeon. And he talked about what faith in God really looks like. And Spurgeon was helped by it, and as the friend was reading through it, Spurgeon realized that those were the words that he had previously written. His friend was reading his own words to him. You almost want to go back and read Psalm 34 to David here. 
thinking about what we can learn from these first four verses, the fact that we're troubled by David's thinking, I've got a few thoughts for us. First, don't discard David, okay? Don't see David here and go, what an utter failure. There's nothing for me ever again to learn from David. If he's this weak, I can't learn from him. Don't do that. The Bible means for us to learn from other people. Hebrews 11 is a chapter that teaches us to learn and see the faith of a number of men and women, and none of them were perfect. None of them were. So don't throw David to the side. During the last couple of years, there are lots of debates as to what churches should do about COVID and government restrictions and things like that. And some people said one thing, some people said a totally opposite thing, and a lot of people said things in between. There was one theologian who, who's been very helpful to the church. He's been helpful to this church, <laughs> by extension. He's been very helpful to the church, and, and he actually disagreed with another pastor who was maybe doing things differently, slightly. It was a slight disagreement. And I remember seeing on uh, social media someone saying about that theologian who disagreed slightly with this other fellow. He said, uh, I used to read him and listen to him. I'm done listening to him. And I thought, what a tragedy. You might not agree with this man and how he thinks that the church should handle this particular instance during these very difficult time, these difficult times to understand, but you're going to throw away everything? I think that's rather foolish. This guy's not denying the faith. This guy's not not preaching heresy. But to say, I'm throwing them all out. Then there will be no one left. No one that the Holy Spirit has used to help us along. God's plan is to use fallen people, fallen men and women, to help His other disciples. So, be careful of throwing away people that you've listened to when they may have a different, maybe, application on something than you do. I'm talking minor things. Again, it's not someone saying, I don't think Jesus is God anymore. Okay, we're done. We're done. I'm not listening to you anymore. But this wasn't even close to that. So be careful to not discard David, okay? Secondly, be careful, and I'm going to give you a term here. I think I made it up, but go with me. Be careful of historically, historical chronological self-righteousness. Historical chronological self-righteousness. As we go on in history, as we look back at David's life, we see he should have done that differently. He should have done that differently. He should have done that differently. And then it turns into, I would have done that differently. I would have done that differently. I would have done that differently. David Gath, I wouldn't have done it. David Gath a second time, I wouldn't have done it. David Bathsheba, I wouldn't have done it. David Uriah, I wouldn't have done it. Be careful. Be careful. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 
and points them back to the complaining Israelites in the wilderness. And he says he's meaning for them to learn. The church today, in his day, first century, to learn from that. Don't go down that path. And then Paul says this, the man who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. So be careful of historical, chronological self-righteousness. David was in a difficult situation. We come away reading 1 Samuel 27 thinking David should have responded differently, and he should have. But for a moment, put yourself in his sandals. It's a difficult time. Lots of temptation. This is not excusing David's sin or wrongdoing in any way. I'm not doing that in any way. I'm just saying people are going through things that are maybe deeper than you are at the time. I think this is a good reminder for us to be gracious with one another. Oh, I can't believe he did that. She did that. You also haven't been living their life the last three years. And I'm not saying what they did was right. What I am saying is life is hard. And maybe instead of first coming and preaching a sermon, we can say, I can't imagine what you're going through. How can I help? Be careful of historical, chronological self-righteousness. Another application, know that all spiritual heroes have weaknesses. I've touched on that previously. Know that all spiritual heroes have weaknesses. Everyone, everyone, your favorite author, your favorite preacher, your favorite grandpa, your favorite uncle, whatever, all of our spiritual heroes have weaknesses. Moses, Elijah. Elijah fell into depression right after he defeated the prophets of Baal, or I should say after God defeated the prophets of Baal in miraculous fashion. God literally did a miracle, and Elijah's God defeated the prophets of Baal. Next chapter, he's depressed, not thinking rightly. And you see God still care for him, feed him, give him rest, and then send him out to greater ministry. God is so good. All spiritual heroes have weaknesses. Moses, Elijah, Peter, Paul, your favorite writers, your favorite authors, your favorite missionaries, your favorite Christian family members, everyone has weaknesses. I was, I was telling, I can't remember who I was telling recently, I was thinking about this, talking about this, and I said, you know what, no one impresses me anymore. The older I get, I'm not impressed by anyone. And maybe that's a little strong <laughs> or hyperbolic, um, what I mean is, we're all just men and women. We're all the same in that regard. High points, low points. Even disciples. Think of Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got it, Peter. Very next passage. Jesus saying, Son of man's going to be executed. I'm going to die. No way, Lord. No way. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, high and low. Spiritual heroes all have weaknesses. We're meant to be impressed ultimately to Jesus. We're meant to have our chief loyalty to Jesus. Please do not have blind loyalty to any leader so that you can never see any of their weaknesses. Or maybe you can't see them 
of clothes because you don't know them, or maybe they died 200 years ago, whatever it may be, but don't assume that they don't have them. All of them do. That's why I prefer biographies to autobiographies. Autobiographies, someone writing about all their accomplishments in their lives, I don't like those. I prefer a biography that says, here were some weaknesses, here were some blemishes. It reminds me to be thankful for the strengths and to be thankful that Jesus has no weaknesses. I can read the Gospels and never question Jesus. And if I do, it's because I'm wrong and not Him. Jesus is the hero, the constant hero, the forever hero. This is the doctrine of immutability, the immutability of God. He never changes. He never gets better. He never gets worse. You can't improve on who He is. He never changes. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word to you. Imitate their faith, Hebrews 13, 7, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So know that all spiritual heroes have weaknesses. So here in first four verses, we're troubled by David's thinking. Secondly, verse 5 through chapter 28, verse 2, we're troubled by David's tactics. What he does is troubling to us. Verse 5, then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Makes sense. Hey, me and my 1,500 or so people, why should we be in your city? Remember, David's already been victorious militarily. Okay, he's already got some sort of reputation. The people of Gath would have known David killed Goliath and that people sang songs about how great David was in his military might. So David's saying, you know, you don't need two cooks in the kitchen. You don't need two chiefs in the tribe. Why don't I take a town just away from you? So, verse 5, that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, the day of Samuel's writing. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So, David was given a town, Ziklag. It's, there, there's debate as to where Ziklag was, but I believe it was the town uh, located right near the border of the Philistine territory and the territory of Judah at the time. So, the Philistines, in a sense, controlled that right then, but after David was there, the Israelites controlled it for a good length of time. So, David was there on that border town. Border towns are so important in in geopolitical conflicts, right? So important. Is it your territory, their territory? Whose is it? So David's there in that town, that border town, and Achish approves of that. You take that area. I don't know what Achish was thinking. I think he probably thought David really was now going against Saul. David really was now ready to fight with the Philistines against Israel. That was a common thing back in that day. People would switch allegiances pretty quickly for their own benefit. So evidently, Achish thinks this is a good thing for him to do, so he gives David Ziklag. Verse 8, now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these, and this is key, were the inhabitants of the land from of old. Joshua 13 mentions some of these groups. The Israelites were supposed to, years before, come into the territory and wipe out all of these sinful people and take the land. 
The Old Testament will show you that it was God's land. All of it is God's land. And these wicked people were dwelling in it, thumbing their nose at the living God. And so God sends His people to judge them and come and live in that land that God was giving them. It's His land. Israelites were just renting it, if you will. God owns it all. So David and his men would go and strike these groups, which is what the Israelites should have done back then. They didn't. David and his men would go strike these groups. They were the true enemies of Israel, even in that day. Verse 8, David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. This is part of God's judgment on those people. Deuteronomy 20 actually told the people of Israel to do this. But he would take away the sheep and oxen and donkeys and camels and garments and come back to Achish. The way the text is written, it's showing that he would bring some of the spoil back to Achish. So Achish, this king of Gath, is receiving goods. He's got enemies eliminated all because of David. This is working out well. Verse 10, when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, David would lie, David would deceive He'd say against the Negev of Judah. So David's defeating the Lord's enemies, Israel's enemies, but he would tell Achish, I'm going to war against Israel. I'm going to war against Judah. I'm killing people from Judah. All the while, Achish thinking, see, he's on our side now. He's killing his own countrymen. This is going to be good for us. But David's deceiving. Or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites, and David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. He had to kill everyone because if someone escaped and they went and told Achish, king of Gath, hey, he's coming after us. Wait, I thought he was going after Judah. No, he came after us. Oh, that lion, no good. So David had to kill everyone. David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us, tell on us, and say, so David has done. Hey, David's done this. David's done that. Such was his custom, and all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And David, and Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. <clears throat> Verse 20, or chapter 28. <clears throat> in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, probably spurred on because now they had David probably because they thought the forces in Judah were weakened because of David's raids that never happened. So, the Philistines are going to go fight against Israel. Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. You've heard the reports of my victories. You'll see my victories, is what David's saying. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. That is such an interesting phrase. Bodyguard. Literally, I will make you the keeper of my head. Do you know any other military leader from Gath that lost his head? Goliath. Achish Achish knows that David cut off Goliath's head, but now this shows how secure he thinks he is with David. But now he says, you will be the keeper of my head. You will protect my head. He thinks David has turned. And for the person reading 1 Samuel the very first time who doesn't know the future, is reading and saying, but what is David doing here? 
He wrote in Psalm 34, not to be deceitful when you trust in the Lord. But earlier on in chapter 27, he's not trusting in the Lord, and here he is being deceitful. So is David setting up Achish, or is David a fallen leader? What in the world is going on with David? This is uncomfortable. David's son would later write these words, Proverbs 12, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is for a moment. David's deceiving. A couple commentators that I was reading this week kind of bring out the trouble for the reader in this passage. Spence says this, there is a sense of disappointment when the Bible relates to us our hero's failures and fears. Kind of a sense of disappointment here when you read this. Del Ralph Davis said, this text understands David. It kind of understands where he is and why he's there and why he'd be troubled. This text understands David but doesn't endorse his tactics. Remember being in high school and I just have always been a baseball fan and there's a minor league baseball team in the town next to us so we would go to the games and just looked up to these guys that made $100 a month, like, these guys are amazing, you know. Um, just thought they were the greatest. And um, my cousin was roommates with the general manager of the team. So one day, just on a whim, I was an eighth grader, I was at the game, and I saw the general manager of the team, his name was Dan, and I said, Dan, how do you become a bat boy for this team? You know, bat boy, one who does all the work around the team and gets the bats, you know, from home plate during the game. And he was like, you want to be a bat boy? I was like, yeah. And uh, he goes, okay, show up tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> so from my eighth grade year till my sophomore year in high school, I was a bat boy for a minor league baseball team. I would show up uh, about four hours before the game right after school and do a bunch of work and then work the game and then clean up afterwards. And my parents would always have to drive 30 minutes to pick me up and they'd pick me up at 1030 on a school night and I got paid $15 a night for it. It was awesome. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. <laughs> And these guys, I mean, I, look, I knew these guys. That first year I came in, I had been cheering for these guys. I knew their names, knew their positions. They were like, they were wonderful. But when I got the job, I came in, I would be in the clubhouse, which is like the locker room. Not the best place for an eighth grade boy to be. And quickly these heroes became disgusting to me. I can think of one particular outfielder that I thought was just the greatest. He played the position I played, and I patterned my batting stance after him, and I just, and when I got to know him, not a hero, just disgusting. And uh, that's what happens to some degree with every man and woman. We are not as wonderful as our highest moments. Heaven's the place for that. But aren't you so glad that God is gracious to us? He doesn't judge us by our highest moments or our lowest moments. He judges us in light of His Son, His Son's merit for us. What a God. But we are troubled by David. We're troubled by his tactics. So i got a few more points of application for us just in light of this last point. First, learn from biblical mistakes. It, it's one thing to say, I never would have done what David did. Well, 
Maybe, maybe not. But let's at least learn from it. What would I have done if I were in David's shoes? Maybe we rehearse Psalm 34 to ourselves sometime this week when we're tempted to fail or tempted to distrust the Lord. Maybe Psalm 34 is something that we focus on to say, I don't want to respond that way. I do want to trust Him. So learn from biblical mistakes. Secondly, remember that wrong decisions sometimes work because God is gracious. Sometimes we make wrong decisions and they end up working not because we were right and God was wrong. See, I should have done this, God. No, just simply because God's gracious. All our lives should be train wrecks, way worse than they are now. But God in His grace doesn't let that happen. Also, remember that human hearts are crying for more than David. I think I love going through 1 Samuel. I have become an admirer of David more than I was. I think about how he showed mercy to Saul, and I think, how did you do that? After years in a wilderness with hundreds of people, and you're innocent, how do you do that? I'm an admirer of David. But chapter 27 reminds me, that David is just a man like me, a person like you. Our hearts long for someone more than David. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and in these three words, you know them, yet without sin. Jesus understands what we're going through. He's been tempted in similar ways, yet without sin. Jesus is infinitely greater than David. And David is a hero. Jesus is infinitely greater. If you're not a Christian, I want to highlight to you that our hearts long for a perfect person to fix all the problems. That's what our hearts long for. You, if you're not a Christian, are just like many of us. You you put a lot of stock in elections or in having a great boss or a great spouse. Nobody who's elected, nobody who is your employer, nobody who is married to you can ever hold a candle to Jesus Christ. He is the perfect Savior, the perfect leader, He's never sinned, and He's gracious to sinners. I would invite you, I would beg you, I would command you by the gospel being a command, okay? Trust Jesus Christ for all eternity. Trust in Him. Start today. Say, I have a sin problem. I trust in you to take care of it. I place my now and my future into your hands. Trust in Jesus who righteously lived, died, rose again, calling people to Himself. This is the Savior that our soul longs for. And heaven has given Him to us. I think of these words in a song. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt 
and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place, you suffered, bled, and died. Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, dying for his people. Our hearts long for that. So David sometimes troubles us, but it's a good reminder that we need someone other than David, right? There are things to learn from David, but we need a greater David. On Wednesday, I was reading Davis's commentary as he closed this section, and I read it a couple times. I was just so helped by it. It was the last maybe four, three, four paragraphs or so. And I thought, how can I communicate all of this? This is so good. How can I communicate all of this to our people on Sunday? How can I condense it? And, and I thought, just read it, okay? So here you go. <laughs> I've got three paragraphs for you. Please hang in there. Listen to every word. This is so helpful to us. Davis concludes the passage this way. By now you may have become an angry reader. You may be angry at David because over the last number of chapters you have become pro-David. You have been moved by the sad lot of the afflicted, hunted servant of God who runs from Saul because Saul in his frenzied envy insists on bathing his hands in David's blood. David, you might say, has won your heart and now he has disappointed you as most of God's servants will do at some time. You have been, as the current impersonal jargon has it, betrayed. Conceivably, you could be angry at the Bible as well for telling you the unvarnished truth about this man David. Or you may even become angry at Yahweh because he chose David and rejected Saul. But how can he choose, support, sustain, and protect one who deceives and butchers like this? Did you ever think that perhaps the writer is trying to correct your mistakes? Yes, you, Bible reader that you are, may have fallen into the trap of hero worship. Why should you be surprised, shocked, offended? Why should you talk about betrayal? The text is saying that this chosen, anointed servant is made of the same stuff as all the Lord's people. Must we throw out God's kingdom because not only its subjects, even its premier servants are sinners? Instead, you must get a grip on grace. The Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox so that they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to you. The living God does not, have, not ever have clean material to work with. And don't get sentimental when you sing hymns about the potter and the clay. Remember, it's only sinful clay the potter works with. We should not criticize the potter because of the clay, but rather marvel that he stoops to work with such stuff. And then this, as long as we wallow, however subtly, in some kind of human worthiness, we will never understand the Bible, never tremble before this God, and never delight in this God. We must get a grip on grace. Did you notice, by the way, Andrew speaking now, did you notice that God is nowhere mentioned in this chapter? Look at where our minds go when there's no God in our thoughts. There's no God in this chapter. But Davis ends his statement this way. 
maybe a godless text can teach us that we need to get a grip on His grace. Let's pray together. Father, our only hope for our future is in You being gracious to us. You've been gracious to us in Your perfect Son. All of us fallen, all of us sinful, all of us broken, but all of us loved, protected, guided, and even used because You are gracious. Father, I think if I had to wrap up today with a theme, I'd say that Your Son in His perfection is amazing to us, and we love Him above all else. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for who you are and what you've done. We pray all this in your name. Amen.